Now, John F. Kennedy, uh, Martin Luther King, Bruce Lee, Amy Winehouse, Princess Di, and you're probably thinking, what's the connection there? Well, the connection is that these are just some of the many high-profile people who died at a young age. And yet their fame still lives on and continues in some degree to grow. And we, when we think of these names, we often wonder, don't we, what, sort of, what, what, what these people would have gone on to achieve had they, um, their lives continued, had their lives not been tragically cut short by the reality of death, a reality that we all face. Now, on Good Friday, we celebrated the death of the most famous person who died young, the Lord Jesus Christ. He died in his 30s. The Bible records his death. As we read the Bible, we see Jesus betrayed. He's betrayed to the religious leaders by his close disciple, Judas Iscariot. We see the leaders hand over Jesus to their oppressors, the Romans. We see Pontius Pilate hold a sham trial and condemns Jesus to death. They crucified Jesus. And as we think about these events, we recognize that all of this has happened after Jesus has healed the sick, raised the dead, driven out demons, and even fed their stomachs. Not the stomachs of the demons, I'm saying the stomachs of the people. The many miracles that Christ did. He showed them only love. And Christ never sinned. He lived a sinless life. Surely, if there was ever a man on earth who did not deserve to die young, Jesus fits the bill. And yet there he was, brutally murdered on that cross of wood, on the hill called Golgotha, stretched out naked in cold blood between two thieves. And after Jesus died, it took a secret disciple Joseph of Arimathea to give him a decent funeral. You see, our Lord Jesus, who was born poor in a manger of all places, also died poor. Humanly speaking, Jesus could not afford his own funeral. That is the life of Jesus. And if that is all there is to the life of Jesus, it's a tragic life. If that is all you believe, that is, that is all there is to Jesus, then you believe in a tragic life. It would not be worth celebrating. It would be worse than our lives, worse than your life. Because I'm sure you were born in a hospital and you probably die in a hospital, hospice somewhere. That's not the life of Jesus. But we are here today because that is not all we can say about Jesus. Because the death of Jesus was not the end. Jesus rose from death. His resurrection is the heart of the Christian faith. The Apostle Paul writing to the church of Corinth in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 14 to 15 says this, And if Christ has not been raised then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. 
We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ whom he did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. Paul is saying that if Christ isn't raised, all of this is a waste of time. The baptisms are a waste of time if Christ has not been raised. But Christ has been raised. You see, our life with God depends on the historical fact that Jesus rose from death. Without the resurrection, all of this is pointless. But Christ has risen from death. And since then, since Christ rose from death, every Sunday, Christians gather to worship Jesus. That's important. Why do we gather on a Sunday? The Jews worship on a Sunday. Well, we gather on a Sunday because that's the day Christ rose from death. Every Sunday really is Easter Sunday. Resurrection Sunday. And of course, every year we celebrate the resurrection of Christ on Easter Sunday. Today I want us to think about this truth, that Jesus rose from death. And I want us to do that by looking at the eyewitness account of the resurrection of Jesus by one of his followers, the Apostle John, who was there, went to the empty tomb. Our brother David read for us the account. We're just going to walk through it like we did on Good Friday. Let's look at John 20, verse 1 to 18. And the key truth this passage really is teaching us is simply this. Jesus is alive to give us a fresh start with God. Jesus is alive to give us new life with God. A fresh start. Please look with me there at verse 1. It is early Sunday morning. Very early Sunday morning. Uh, the Jewish Sabbath finished just a few hours ago. And we see here that Mary of Magdala is on her way to the tomb of Jesus. Look at verse 1. Now, on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark. Let's just pause there. Who is this Mary? Well, this is not Mary the prostitute. This is Mary who had seven demons driven out of her by Jesus. People really misunderstand Mary Magdalene. Mary Magdalene is a woman who had seven demons driven out of her. And Luke tells us she's going to the tomb with other women. You see, Mary is on a mission to finish the burial preparations which could not be done on Good Friday due to Jewish, we might say, Jewish lockdown laws during Sabbath. They're there on lockdown. And she couldn't go out. Now we imagine as Mary walks to the tomb, her face is beaten with grief, right? On Good Friday, Mary saw her beloved rabbi, whom she had followed probably for two years. She saw him disfigured and then murdered on the cross. Now, some of you here have experienced going for a body viewing, right? It's the last time you're going to see the face of your loved one before they're buried. And you may even think of that last time you did that. Those are heartbreaking moments, isn't it? Filled with raw pain. It is not just the pain of loss. It is also the haunting reminder that death comes to all of us. You really sense that when you are going through that moment. You see, animals don't hold funerals. 
every living thing dies, but only human beings die with a ceremony. Why is that? Well, because unlike the rest of creation, we are haunted by death. We hate seeing death because it reminds us that we ourselves will not live on this rock forever. One day your corpse will need a Mary to cream it for burial. That's the reality. You will die one day. And for some of us, it may even come very quickly. Maybe even today. Now, we don't like thinking about death. We say, I thought we came to Resurrection Sunday. What's all this talk about death? We don't like hearing about death. But you need to hear it because you often live as if this is the only life you have. You see? You live like death is not coming for you, but even if it came, this is the only life I have. Well, death is an extension of life. Every one of us will live beyond death. The only question is this, where will you spend your eternity after you die? That's the only question. You will live beyond the grave. The question is where are you going beyond the grave? Are you going to spend it in the loving hands of the Jesus you loved while you're on earth? Or will you spend eternity separate from Jesus? Will God welcome you into his heaven and say, sit here with me? Or will, God, will you be far from God and suffering eternal wrath with the devil and his demons in hell? Now, as we sit here this, on Resurrection Sunday, many of us are quick to say, I'm going to be with God. So that means option A, yeah? Not B. We're quick to say that. But listen to me very carefully. The Bible is clear that the only way to enter heaven is through the narrow gate. Not the broad gate. The narrow gate. Broad is the road that leads to hell. The road to heaven is a narrow gate. That gate is Jesus. Acts 4 verse 12 says this. There is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. And this really, in some, in some sense, you need to understand that, that the Holy Church, as I said on Good Friday, was not being persecuted because they believed in God. The Romans were okay with that. They were being persecuted because of Acts 4 verse 12. There is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. It's exclusive. Only through Jesus. It's narrow. Only through Jesus can you be saved. You see, heaven is only for people who place themselves at God's mercy to save them from sin. Because Jesus has suffered the wrath and judgment of God in their place. And if you have not done that, heaven is not for you. And so you must, as you stand here, come before God now. Right? Come before God now, before death swallows you to eternal hell. Repent of your sin and surrender your life to Jesus Christ. 
Accept you are a sinner. And I think God has brought you this morning providentially on Resurrection Sunday, not only to hear the gospel, but to see a vivid picture of the gospel. As people are baptized underwater, what's going on there? There is a symbolism of going under judgment. And as they rise by the power of the indestructible life, the life of the Lord Jesus Christ, they have received new life as, they, as we see that symbolized as they come out of the water. And they're doing that because they've already repented. They're trusting in Jesus. And you must do that. Repent of your sins, surrender your life to Jesus. Ask God to forgive you your sin based on the death and resurrection of Jesus. On the death of Jesus for you, and God to give you new life because Christ rose from death. But for you to receive this new life, you must repent. You must trust in Jesus personally. Your mom cannot do it for you. Your dad can't do it for you. Your spouse cannot do it for you. You must do this for yourself. Relationship with God is a personal affair. So let's place the play button on the stove. Let's go back to Mary. A broken-hearted Mary has now reached the tomb, we see in verse 1, and as soon as she sees it, her problems multiply. Let's read verse 1 again. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. Now, the tomb where Jesus was buried belongs to a wealthy man, Joseph of Arimathea. And like all expensive tombs, it was quarried out of a rock, right? Now, when Jesus was buried in the tomb, they sealed it with a large secular stone. But we know from reading the book of Matthew, that was not the end, right? What happened on Saturday? We don't think about Saturday. But on Saturday, the religious leaders asked Pilate to seal it even more, you know, to make sure the tomb was really sealed. And so what Pilate did is he posted soldiers to ensure that no one tempers uh, with the tomb. But Mary now has arrived, and to her surprise, the tomb is now empty. And the body is gone. What has happened? Well, Mary runs quickly to inform the hiding disciples. Look at verse 2. So she ran and went to Simon, Peter, and the other disciple, that is John who's writing, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. See, in Mary's world, everyone dies and remains there. You know, one of the things you have to understand about the resurrection is that no one expected Jesus to rise from death. Mary didn't. And so as she sees the tomb is empty, our only explanation is that the grave robbers have somehow managed to steal the body of Jesus. And so we are told, Peter and the other disciples, they have had enough. What do they do? They now run to the tomb, right? Peter and John. So Peter, verse 3. So Peter went out with the other disciples and they were going towards the tomb. Now, this is very interesting now. John is writing this, probably as the last surviving disciple, late in life, in his old age, as he puts this together, and he includes something unexpected we don't expect to read. Look at verse 4. Both of them were running together. 
But the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. Quite a pointless statement. But it's quite insightful. Because he wants us to know that he beats his old power to the tomb. I ran with Peter and I ran him. And I think as he writes verse 4, you can picture him smiling as he writes. It's a, it's a great personal touch to the, to the account. It's, it's irrelevant, really, but it's relevant on a personal level. And it shows that this really happened. Because one of the ways we know that some, a story is true is that people include things in the story that doesn't really move the narrative further. But they're important because they happened. And in this case, he did run faster than Peter. It's an interesting point. It's only interesting to John and Peter, right? So John arrives first. Let's read on verse 5 to 7. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen clothes lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb, and he saw the linen clothes lying there, and the first clothes which had been on Jesus' head not lying with the linen clothes, but folded up in a place by itself. Now, from John's careful description of the contents, it is, from John's careful description of the content, it is clear that the tomb has not been ransacked by grave robbers. That's obvious. Because we see the linen clothes, um, that had been wrapped around Jesus' body are lying in their folds, right? That's why he says that he saw the linen clothes lying there and literally lying in their folds in the original. It is as if the body has just evaporated through them. And then the sweat clothes, which is called the Saudarian, that had been wrapped around Jesus' face has been folded separately. And that indicates that it has been put there carefully. Carefully. I mean, that, you could spend time just thinking about Jesus and the care to which he puts the cloth there. It is having resurrected from death. Now the point is this. As John sees the evidence, it all comes together. Because verse 8 to 10 tells us, doesn't it? Then the other disciples who had reached the tomb first also went in. And he saw and believed. For they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. I just want us to note in passing here that John goes into the tomb, sees the evidence, and believes Jesus is alive without seeing Jesus or even knowing the Bible. Or understanding it. Understanding the prophecies. He just sees the evidence. And it all comes together and he believes it. Now that is important because it's teaching us that God is not against evidence-based conclusions about matters of faith. Faith is not a leap into the dark which trusts God later. That's not faith. It's not a leap in the dark. You know, followers of Jesus are not supposed to, they're not required to start each day, you know, with cowboy shouts of Geronimo, you know. Nah. True faith in Jesus means trusting in Jesus based on what we know about Jesus in the Bible, in history, and personal experience. 
And the more we believe in Jesus, based on what we know to be true, the more we grow to understand, experience, trust, and know Jesus more. So it is okay for you to honestly ask, is Jesus true? I can't just believe in him because of my mother says so, or my wife says so. I want to know, is Jesus really true? How can I be truly sure he is the only way, the truth, and the life? It's okay for you to, do, to, to ask those questions. And it's great if you're asking those questions. Because you must make an informed decision about Jesus. So examine the evidence. Read the Bible. The historical evidence from secular historians. Josephus, Sotinicius, and others. Pliny the Younger. Read all of these things. And if you want to talk about it, come and see me afterwards. Ask honest questions. I like to hear people's genuine questions. Have you been to our Bible studies? We spend quite a lot of time dissecting specific questions people have. Let us arrange to meet and study the Bible together. And, and then you come to your own life conclusion. I'm not really interested in forcing anyone to come to know the Lord. Just, it doesn't work. You're going to know Jesus for yourself. All we can do as a fellowship is give you the answer, question, answer to your question, and then you reach your own conclusions. But what is unacceptable, I think, is standing on the fence. Your life is at stake. And we love you, so we say, look at the evidence. Jesus doesn't give us the option of standing on the fence. Remember the two roads, the narrow road or the broad road. Don't stand on the fence. Look at the evidence. And I think when you look at the evidence, here's what I think you discover. Once you start looking into Jesus, seriously, like John, you find that Jesus is in the league of his own. You know, history has produced many, many, many great leaders. Scientists, philosophers, politicians, prophets. But you know what? Once they got into the grave, they remained there. They couldn't climb out. No one speaks of their resurrection. Jesus differs from all that have lived before and will live after him because his tomb is empty. It is this day, Resurrection Sunday, that really sets Jesus apart. Because the tomb is not just empty. Jesus said the tomb will be empty. That's the point. He didn't just rise from death. He says, I'm going to die, I'm going to be buried, then I'll rise. Three times he says that in the Gospel of Mark. That makes his death without equal. But my point is, investigate that. Look into it. The extraordinary claim of the Bible is that everyone lives to die, but Jesus died to live forever. Jesus stepped into the ring with death and literally knocked death out. And we are here this morning because we are celebrating this wonderful truth that the Lord Jesus is alive. We worship a risen and exalted Lord Jesus. Why does this matter? Well, it matters. Let's find out from Mary. Before we even find out from Mary, let that sink in. We are not here this morning to carry on the legacy of a dead Lord. Just carrying the legacy forward. No. 
We are here to worship a risen Savior. And it matters, as I said. Let's see, because let's find out for Mary why it matters. Let's rejoin Mary. Uh, we're imagining this, if this was a camera, John's camera now switches back to Mary, doesn't, doesn't it? We've had Peter and John, but now he switches back to Mary. She's back at the empty tomb. Look, but puzzled, look at verse 11 to 13. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. And as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. They, that is the angel, angel said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Let's just pause there. The angels know the Lord Jesus Christ is alive. That's the context, right? They know the Lord Jesus Christ is alive. So as they see Mary now weeping, it puzzles them. What are you crying about? This is not a funeral. They don't get it. What, what's going on with Mary? Now the buffered Mary hears this. She just mumbles out an answer, doesn't she? She mumbles it out. Let's read on verse 13. She said to them, They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. But before she can collect her thoughts, she immediately senses there's someone be behind her. Look at verse 14. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing. But she did not know that it was Jesus. She sees Jesus. She doesn't know it, it is him. And as she turns now, Jesus speaks directly to Mary. Look at verse 15. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Similar question as the angels had asked. Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. She has heard our Lord Jesus' voice, right? Right? And she still doesn't get it. Mary doesn't recognize Jesus in his risen form because she doesn't expect Jesus to be alive. This is the point. She does not expect a corpse to come to life. Remember, at this point, she's still thinking he's still dead, regardless of who's in front of her. And she's troubled by this. And then Jesus speaks again, doesn't he? Verse 16. Jesus said to her, Mary... Mary. She, she has heard our Lord's voice already, but now at the mention of her name by him, Mary, she recognizes him, doesn't she? She turned and said to him in Aramaic, verse 16, which means teacher. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Mary immediately, if you like, if we are picturing this, really falls at the feet of Jesus. And clings for dear life. She's not going to lose him again. And Jesus responds most likely with a smile. Look at verse 17. Jesus said to her, do not cling to me. For I have not yet ascended to the Father. 
But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my father and your father, to my God and your God. I just want us to pause the camera here. And I want us to think about what Jesus has just said to Mary. First notice, Jesus says to Mary, Go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my father and your father, to my God and your God. Jesus is reminding us that he is God the Son. And he's saying if you become a follower of Jesus, right, his father will become your father as well. If you are trusting in Jesus, you are family with Jesus in God. God is your father. And amazingly, the Lord Jesus will now become your true brother if you trust in Jesus. What a claim. Because he says here, go to my brothers. What a claim. If you trust in Jesus, Jesus, God the Son, will become your brother. How is that possible? Well, it is possible because when God the Son died on Good Friday, God accepted his death as a worthy sacrifice for your sin by raising Jesus from death. That's how it's possible. Jesus makes all who trust in him children of God by forgiving us of our sins by his death and giving us new life with God through his resurrection. And this family would now we share with Christ is now permanent. You never stop being a member of your biological family, will you? No matter how much they annoy you, they're still family. You might even say, unfortunately, right? That's life. When you're born into a family, you remain like that. It's the same with the Christian faith. If you are God's child, you will always be God's child in Christ. God will always be your heavenly father forever. And it gets even better, doesn't it? Did you notice that Jesus says here, I am ascending to my father and your father, to my God and your God. What's that about? Well, Jesus is 100% God and 100% man. He's saying, I am now going to heaven as, as a man. I am going to heaven as a man to sit on the throne of heaven, to sit at the right hand of God. I'm going as a God man. 100% God, 100% man. This is, this, is, this, is, this is a stunning truth because Jesus has risen and ascended into heaven as a man. I mean, I'm repeating myself because it is stunning to think about it. Why? Because for the first time, a human being now sits on the throne of heaven. Our human skin now rubs against the throne of heaven. And what is great about it is that our Lord Jesus, sitting as a God-man now in heaven, well, he's not there alone. The Bible says if you repent and trust and surrender your life to Jesus, you become united to Jesus. You have this faith union which we've been talking about in our baptism discussion. We have this faith union with Jesus. The story of Jesus now becomes our story. At the very moment you trust in Jesus, the Bible says that you are now sat in, with Christ in the heavenly places. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4 to 6 says this. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, 
made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And then he goes on to say, And raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. That's Ephesians 2 verse 4 to 6. You know what this means is that if you repent of your sin and trust in Jesus this morning, you will no longer be lost in this world. You will always be with Jesus, your brother. This is the amazing news of Easter. Jesus died and rose from death not just to save you from the horrors of hell, but to give you a new start, a new life with God. Jesus rose from death not only to save you from sin, not only for your justification, but to sit you right with him in heaven now and forever. This is the wonder of the Christian life, that as I'm here physically, I am spiritually united with Christ. I am also sat with Christ in the heavenly places. And that speaks of the life and security we have in Jesus, because he's ascended to heaven. And if you trust in Jesus, you can have the same life and security in Jesus. But you've got to trust in Jesus. You've got to believe in him. You've got to do what Mary of Magdala does here. Let's rejoin Mary. You see what she does? She believes in the resurrection of Jesus. She meets Jesus and she's changed by him and she believes in him. Look at verse 18. As we come to the end of this narrative. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples. What wonderful words. I have seen the Lord. Have you seen the Lord? I don't mean physically. Have you seen him spiritually? Have you seen who he is? She says, I have seen the Lord. And that he had said these things to her. You know, when Mary first went to the tomb, she was full of unbelief, lacking in faith, expecting nothing. A corpse, that's what she expected. And she didn't find the corpse, and she's confused. And that first report to the disciple was full of confusion, full of doubt. But now she's gone back to the tomb, encountered the Lord Jesus Christ. She's now full of faith, and she's able to say, I have seen the Lord Jesus. That's what true faith looks like. It is personal. It says, I believe in Jesus. I believe that he has died and risen for me. He is my resurrected Lord. You see, the devil believes that Jesus rose from death. He does. He knows. And he trembles at that truth. So we're not talking about intellectual knowledge here. You've got to do better than the devil to enter heaven. You've got to do better than the devil. Simply knowledge is not what being a Christian is about. The devil believes Jesus rose from death better than you. He's convinced of that and he's waging war against Christ for that. But the devil does not trust in Jesus as his resurrected Lord. I wonder, are you Mary or the devil here? Is your knowledge of Jesus merely intellectual without trust? Or can you say as you sit here this morning, I am not the devil, I am Mary. I believe in Jesus. I trust in Jesus as my Lord. I treasure him as my only Lord and Savior. See, a true Christian knows deep in their heart that they are a sinner before God. 
And so they have repented of their sin. And they are trusting only in Jesus to save them from sin. And this is what Paul, Grant, and Chelsea have done. They know that they can never be good enough for God. We've had those discussions and they are absolutely convinced that they cannot be good enough for God. They know they cannot enter heaven by good works. So what have they done? They have waved the white flag of surrender to Jesus. They are putting all their full trust in the death of Jesus. In the resurrection of Jesus. And you know, these brothers and sisters, they are not simple. This is not an easy thing for them. It has required them to deny themselves. The testimonies you've got doesn't capture everything. But as you get to know them and talk to them, you begin you immediately realize that this has required self-denial. Extraordinary self-denial. Supernatural self-denial. The denial that only God can bring about. They have surrendered to Jesus and they want to show the world that they now belong to Jesus by following the Lord Jesus in baptism. They are doing today what the Lord Jesus commanded all his followers to do. To repent and be baptized as a symbol of their new life in Jesus. And I encourage you to take time to read their testimonies. Pick up a copy somewhere. There's one on each, on each row. We put one there. We printed them out so that you can read them and be encouraged by their faith. And if you haven't got a copy, they're all banded together. If you haven't got a copy, uh, let me know. I'll get you one. But the question for you is this. Especially those of you who are friends of these dear ones. What about you? When are you going to truly become a follower of Jesus? When are you going to get off the road to the broad hell that leads, the broad road that leads to hell and truly trust in Jesus Christ? When will you repent of your sin? When will you receive a brand new life with God through the Lord Jesus? You know, Charles Spurgeon says, The mercy of God in Jesus is so great, he says. It forgives great sins to great sinners after great lengths of time. And then gives great grace and great privileges and great blessings. And it will give us great enjoyments in the great heaven of our great God. That's Spurgeon, isn't it? So my friend, can I just encourage you this morning to come to the great God in our Lord Jesus. This very moment, repent of your sin. Surrender to him. Let him give you this new life, this brand new life with God. Now, some of you here, you're trusting in Jesus, and this is good news. And I, I'm thinking especially of uh, Chelsea, Paul, and Grant here. You already have new life with God. All your filthy stains of sins have been wiped clean. God now lives inside your heart forever. You live in God. Jesus is now your life and your life is his. Your future is intertwined now with the future of Christ. And because Jesus is alive, when you die, you will be with God. And the time is coming when, when Jesus will raise you from death and to be physically with him in the new heavens and new earth. 
He will usher you into that new world where righteousness dwells. You will live with Jesus in this new world. And at that moment when Christ raises you from death and ushers into a new heaven, the Bible says you transform your lowly body to become like his body. Not just physically, brothers and sisters. Not just physically, but also intellectually, emotionally. You think like Jesus. Chelsea, you feel like Jesus. But Paul, you love like Jesus. But I grant you talk like Jesus and be with Jesus forever. This is now your new inheritance. It's an inheritance of all those who are in Christ. The inheritance of the risen Christ. You are now part of the people of the risen King. And this is how you must see yourself every day from now. You must see yourself as a person who belongs to a better world. The world of the risen King. Of dazzling angels in fistful gathering. This is your life now in Christ. Now, as we've been discussing, talking together, you know that no matter how long we have walked with Jesus, there are moments, situations in life that makes us doubt our life with God. And the doubts will come. Even more challenges. The devil hates anyone who makes a public profession of faith. So there will be assault after assault, and we have a responsibility as a church to pray for you fervently, get alongside you, disciple you. There will be moments when you stumble in some sin like Peter. And after a struggle, you of course repent from it. But then doubts perhaps will creep in. Do I really have life with Jesus? Was my baptism really genuine? What's going on there? Wow. It is life happening. Because sometimes we find ourselves in some difficult trial and the devil comes and whispers to us, if you are really a believer, why is God let this, letting this happen? I just want to encourage you, brothers and sisters here, that it is wonderful you are getting baptized on Resurrection Sunday. Because you need to come back to that. This glorious truth of the resurrection to comfort you. God is saying, because you truly trust in Jesus, you have a new start. You have a new life in God. Jesus, our King, has called you to himself. He has died and risen for you. So don't give in to doubt. Rejoice now that you are now a child of the risen King. No, no matter what life brings, remember Resurrection Sunday. Remember that you are now in Christ with him. Resurrection Sunday should be your theme tune every, every day from now on. Resurrection Sunday is not the day for all of us who trust in Jesus, a day of tears today. No, no, no. It is day for us to rejoice. To borrow from the hymn writer, rejoice and be glad. For the tomb, that, for the lamb that was slain over death is triumphant and now lives again. Sound his praises. Tell the story. Of him who was slain. Sound his praises. Tell with gladness. He now lives again. Amen.